You're listening to the Electronic Media Collective Podcast Network. For more great shows like the one you're about to enjoy, visit electronicmediacollective.com. And now, our feature presentation. Hello, retro movie lovers. Welcome back to the 1980s movie graveyard. The Halloween marathon is just... It, the train has left the station. We can't stop it now. We just got to record these things. My back is so sore from digging up all these different you know, horror movies because we're digging up so many more movies this month than usual. So, of course, we need all the help we can get. We got to pull in our part-time uh, grave diggers. And I got a part-time grave digger here today. That's right. I'm talking about the one and only Trevor. He's helped us out so many times in the past, and he's here to help us out again today. Trevor, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Go. It feels good to finally be here and prove that I can do non-Helen Slater movies as well. Exactly. You know, that was an issue. <laughs> you know, me as your grave movie grave digger uh, supervisor, I had to pull you aside and say, what's going on with this Helen Slater fixation? Yeah, I mean, yeah, she's cute, but let's like, let's drop it, yeah. you know? We we talked it out, you know, it was good, you know, the, the Helen And I was like, but I, can, we, can we please do a movie with a cute blonde in the lead? And you're like, yes, okay, we'll give you that concession. Yeah, it just can't but be Helen Slater. Can't be Helen Slater this time. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, so you're back, and we're here to cover... I remember when I was a kid, I swear within two years of this movie coming out, it was a cult classic. Now I'm just going to flat out say it's it's a classic now. Like, very rarely will you find anybody who does not like this movie. Um, aside from Corey G, that is. <laughs> but everybody else <laughs> loves this movie. That's right, we're talking about... I think this is the movie that really... Actually, I know for a fact this is a movie that really launched Joe Dante's career. A lot of people talk about Piranha, but I know this movie... Uh, made Steven Spielberg uh, cast uh, D. Wallace in E.T. and uh, Joe Dante even admits himself, uh, you know, this is what got him the script for Gremlins sent to him from Steven Spielberg. So, yeah, today we're going to be talking about, as far as I'm concerned, the one, the only, sequels do not apply because none of them have anything to do with this original. Standalone film, the original, the great classic, The Howling. Welcome to the 1980s Movie Graveyard, the show that lets forgotten movies have one last chance to shine. Now sit back and relax. Enjoy the show. Howling, back from when America was going werewolf crazy during this time period. It was. It was and what's funny is when you watch like the uh, special features on this disc, they talk about how this, this was a really commercial idea because nobody had done a werewolf movie in a while. Little did they know, right? <laughs> At the same time, for people who uh, you know aren't nerds like us and know what year every movie came out, little do they know when they're kind of putting the howling together to you know get into production and stuff. Also, John Landis was uh, doing American Werewolf in London, and uh, these these films came out what mere months apart, right? Yeah, and it's interesting to hear you say that it became a cult classic so quickly. I think that's because you know the howling really did suffer from. Um, it was kind of the near dark, right, of the near dark mm-hmm. Lost Boys situation where right. the other movie was of the year was just a little bit bigger and a little bit better, maybe. So it kind of had that, you know, rep for a bit. But just like near dark, you take some time and then eventually people look at both of them kind of on an equal level. Right. And I think that's what's happened with the howling. I mean, maybe it's not as big as American Werewolf, but it definitely it's it's right up there. It's, I think those are two of the better uh, werewolf movies ever made. So oh, I'm glad it finally finally got that classic status bestowed on it. But I mean, yeah, if you think about the early 80s, I mean, even that, that same year, you also had Wolfen, 
which is like right. the other like I guess that's the redheaded stepchild of the of the three. Because because it tries not to be a werewolf movie, but it, it feels like a werewolf movie. When yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, and really, what are you going to choose? The John Landis werewolf movie, the Joe Dante werewolf movie, or the Gregory Hines Albert Finney werewolf <laughs> exactly. movie? You know? Exactly. Um, but not too long after this, we also get Howling sequels. We get oh. Teen Wolf. We get oh, oh. Full Moon High. You know, yeah. just America was all about uh, oh, oh, werewolves. These the fuckers are going crazy for werewolves back in the day. It's weird because you can't you can't force you can't pay someone to make a werewolf oh, movie no, nowadays. No, no, not at all. And that that's the thing is, um, well, we'll get into this in a second. But uh, I, I have some theories of why the werewolf movie died out. But we're gonna get the movie rolling here. This is you know this little funky situation here. We hit, we are both rolling off of the uh, recently I guess within the last two three years released. Uh, Screen Factory uh, Blu-ray edition. I know there was an MGM special edition out on DVD around 2003-ish. Maybe even a Bare Bones before that. But uh, when this movie starts on the Blu-ray, there's this real... And obviously it's brand spanking new thing that they put on there. There's just like this weird Studio Canal logo that goes for 25 fucking seconds. <laughs> We're going to skip past it. And it's just like you're you're flying through CGI blue sky. Fuck all that bullshit. We're not going to... Do our start point from there. We're going to go to the first, like, actual credit that was, you know, on part of this movie, the original makers of this movie, uh, Avco NBC. And they have a little animated logo of, like, shit flying around. And then, of course, like most of these logos, you know, it pauses. And then, the, you know, the title of the company says, and Am says, sorry, I'm reading this backwards, an Avco Embassy film. So mm-hmm. we got to pause there on the Blu-ray. It is the third, exactly the 30-second mark. Yeah, basically when this, like, now you're playing with Simon bullshit stops <laughs> yeah. and it finally just becomes Avco's, like, solid white. You know? Yeah, as soon as you can actually read it, say, an Avco Embassy film, that's where we have a pause. So it's probably a different, slight different order of startup. If you have the MGM DVD, you probably have the line or some bullshit, and then this comes on. So, But this is the actual beginning of the actual movie movie here. So we got to pause there. I want to say one, two, three, go. And uh, when I say go, hit play on your uh, DVD or Blu-ray remotes here. Uh, for people who don't have the disc, don't worry. You know this is going to be a fun show. You won't, you know, you won't have to worry about the play. But it won't be quite play by play as we had to do for the Chocolate War. There's, I would say that even though it's a great movie, <laughs> there's not as many story complexities in the Howling <laughs> as there is. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I'm about to do it right here. Okay, everybody, you got your remote ready, Trev? I do indeed. All right, everybody, one, two, three, go. And here we go. All right, finally. Already got those 80s-looking red credits. Yeah, those red credits. And uh, I don't know what it was about those red credits or whatever, but I've noticed a lot. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, for, on, like, Blu-rays of these classic movies, there's a lot of compression issues. on. <laughs> yeah, they always bleed a little bit. Yeah, yeah, like, on the, yeah. It always puts, like, a lot of fuzz and stuff. So, I mean, right off the bat, we're getting the title card, The Howling, there. I love that. I love it just how it blows up. It's, yeah. it's great credits. Another movie actually, that did that was um, Breakfast Club. Had the, mm-hmm. the, the credit thing blow up. I love how just like uh, instantly surreal and weird these opening credits are too. Yeah, yeah like like it's almost like um, like you're looking at the inside of a um, like a TV set, like a cathode ray tube mm-hmm. or something. And it's only once you've seen this film multiple times that you realize you're hearing, like, dialogue that'll play out all throughout the film, too. Right, right. So you're getting, like, a little sneak peek at things. Or sneak listen, I guess. I mean, I'm assuming, you know, they just kind of point it. It looks like they put a blue filter on it afterwards or something, but I'm assuming they just 
pointed at the uh, camera, like very zoomed in on a, a, a broken TV or a TV that they were playing a lot of static patterns and stuff on. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like it, it, it almost gives it like you know for what this movie is, it almost gives it like a weird, like almost videodromish cyberpunk feel. Yeah, or like Max Hedrum's gonna pop out in a moment or something, you know. That's right. And we just had a second ago the credit for the uh, guy who did the uh, music, Pino, I guess, Donaggio. And uh, he was an Italian guy. He actually uh, came, I guess, looked at some footage that they had shot and then went back to Italy and composed a score and, uh, you know, and then sent it over and wherever they got was what they got. But I think it worked very well. I think the score is very strong in this movie. Mm-hmm. Here we got... Kind of what's great about this, and I saw Joe Dante on the uh, special features there talking about this, is, um, you know, they didn't do the hard sell on this, I guess, apparently. Maybe that kind of hurt it. Uh, Avco Embassy was kind of, I would say in a weird way, they were like the drive-in theater hammer <laughs> studio of the of the early 80s, because they were really cranking out a lot of horror movies. They also did the, um, John Carpenter's The Fog, right? I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Like they were doing these little, I would say probably. I think all the. I think all these movies were probably sub a million dollars in budget, but. But we start out almost like a, um, obviously not a, in crisis as much, but we start out a little bit in a, in a TV news studio control room. Um, you know, there, there's a something uh, brewing going on. And then, shades of like Dawn of the Dead, right? Yeah, Starting that's up, what I was gonna like say. Just not as hyped up, you know. Yeah, but obviously there's there's a crisis. There's a there's a serious news story that they're trying to break, and then we uh, we get our first look at Tom. I mean, Chris. Yeah, here. this book, this fake Tom Atkins <laughs> imposter. And uh, Dennis Dugan, young Dennis Dugan, who at this point was most famous for having a spinoff um, Rockford Files character show. But uh, yeah. We get introduced. We don't quite know who she is, like right off the bat, but it kind of gets explained here. Is uh, we see D. Wallace kind of going through uh, with what I assume is probably like Hollywood Boulevard here. Mm-hmm. You know, all the you know, and there's a guy in the alleyway who thought she was a hooker, and I don't know why because she's not dressed like a hooker whatsoever. <laughs> no. <laughs> but she uh, hits up a phone booth, and then we realize she's actually wearing a wire for the police, and yeah. uh, she's basically doing an investigative uh, news story, which she's kind of like. Um, and I do know that news, TV news people were much more serious journalists back then, but it's still kind of interesting that they sent an anchor out to do, like, a undercover news. Yeah, story. and it's actually kind of confusing, too. It's like, is this being broadcast right now also? Yeah. And, like, is the is she doing this while the show's live? But I kind of like that this opening, you it you actually have to take a moment and kind of catch up with it. Right. And I think that's, like, a little smarter than even, like, it needs to be, you know, that you can already see Dante feeling pretty confident as a filmmaker of just throwing you into a scene and allowing the audience to have to put the pieces together a little bit here. Yeah, because it almost seems like the people at the news station, unless I misread it, but it almost seemed like they were kind of following along, listening in on what was mm-hmm. going on. Because basically she's going to a seedy part of town, um to uh meet up with uh you know we don't know quite really who he is yet at this point in time but it she's meeting to do kind of a secret under you know i, I would say a, a almost like an el chapo <laughs> interview <laughs> with uh with a local serial killer here mm-hmm. 
here we get our first sense that this movie is going to have a sense of humor to it as well with the, the news anchor. Yeah. We get to see him practicing his news anchor voice. Then we hear his real voice. And then, then it, you finally start to clue in maybe like, oh, OK, this is also going to have, you know, some comedy to it. Which yeah, is kind of the, the Joe Dante special, right, of mixing exactly. horror and, and humor. He's one of the best at it. Oh, by far. And it was kind of funny that the uh, reporter guy was um, practicing his lines in, like, the men's toilet and <laughs> But here we have, um, is, uh, is it, this is the, the big cameo at the phone booth coming up right away, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Yep. Here we have uh, Dee Wallace. She's kind of, um, I guess, nervous. You know, she's she's waiting. You know, she knows she's going to meet the serial killer, but she doesn't know what he's looked like or exactly where he's going to be. So, like, like, she's looking around all suspicious. And there's a man, like, like leaning up against the phone booth, obviously waiting to use the phone. And I can't even tell who to... I mean, obviously I know because I've seen the movie, but even if I didn't, like, even from the back of the head, Roger Corman <laughs> sports a pretty distinct <laughs> profile, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, yeah. I always feel like Roger Corman uh, had a, kind of like a Mr. Rogers personal style of dress going on when you see him. Well, yeah, and I think it's one of the great things about Corman, right, is that just in the way he looks and his personality, he never has seemed like the guy who would have made all those trash movies, right? He's right. got that kind of – it's like it's that David Lynch thing of like just this normal, wholesome Midwest boy – that for some reason was like, hey, let's make movies that are just full of tits and blood. And yeah. well, not for some reason. He did it because he knew they turned a profit, you know. And that's his whole thing. He he never made a movie that didn't make a profit. So yeah, I mean, I I, I call this second, third, fourth. I don't know exactly how you would classify this information, but I actually knew somebody who you know kind of you know probably ten to fifteen years too late was following the Joe Dante type of dream of going to work with Roger Corman. And by mm-hmm. this person, got to, by the time they got to work with them, uh, apparently Roger was just drunk all day. So, which <laughs> but did they? It's not but did they have anything bad to say about him? Because that's the one thing is like you never really hear. It seems like you know for his, it, it, you know, obviously people have horror stories of working with trauma and things yeah. like that. But for as hard as it must have been to work with the budgets that Roger Corman would give yeah. you. Almost everyone I've worked with him just has nothing but glowing things to say about him. Which is shocking, and uh, I knew this person pretty well, so like, I, I don't think they would have any, any reason to like me. Apparently Roger is a mean drunk, and he's drunk quite a bit, so or at least he was during his time period. Things changed. Mm-hmm. I, w- I think this probably would have been... I found out this information probably around 2006, so I think this probably would have been maybe mid to late 90s, I think it was, that this person worked for him, so I'm not sure. Begin. You think if someone as attractive as D. Wallace walked into like an adult bookstore, that all the guys in there would be like freaked out by her, or do you think? Yeah, it would be like turned on, you know? Yeah, like I like I would like if I was in some dirty porno shop and she walked in, you know. And that's the thing too is I kind of you know watching this high definition, you know, on a, a large TV, whatever. The other night, it kind of struck me that kind of how pretty D. Wallace is, considering she's never cast as the quote unquote hot woman in any movies. Mm-hmm. That she's in. She's always uh, cast as like the mom or somebody frumpy. And, you know, I mean, I could understand her playing those roles now that she's, you know, kind of up or, you know, up in age or whatnot. But, but at the time, yeah, I'm, I don't know. Like, this is the only movie. And she's pretty, she's pretty conservative from what I understand. I'd but, say if, I mean, I guess maybe The Hills Have Eyes, right? She was played right. as a little bit more like the sexy girl in that. I guess that could be, yeah. But here we go, and I think this is, for me, Trev, I don't know about you, but for me, this is the scene, really, 
where I started to, you know, I mean, it, it, like, this is, like, you know, awesome, really top-notch B-movie up until this point, but I think this is the first scene where I really started getting kind of on the edge of my seat and, you know, realizing this movie's not exactly your typical low-budget, you know, time-waster type movie. Like, it, it's got a little bit of an edge going here. Yeah, and I mean, at this point, it doesn't matter if it's a werewolf film, right? This right. could just be, like, a, this could turn into a CD De Palma-esque serial killer story. And this opening sequence even feels like that and plays into it. Yeah, and according to, you know, Dante, you know, a lot of the marking kind of marketing, you know, didn't jump straight to the werewolf shit. It kind of played on, you know, because there, there was a lot of these films out at the time. Um, obviously, there were slasher movies at the time, but it also, this was a time when people were kind of doing also, I would say, more artistic slashers like De Palma was doing and stuff. This probably, yeah, or even like uh, Eastwood doing like tightrope. Right, like. right. It was a popular genre, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. it was for a long time until they stopped making them for, I don't know, for whatever reason. I guess they don't play well in China or whatever. Or I just think at a certain point in the 80s, they realized that making the cheap slashers was more profitable. You know? mm-hmm. But D. Wallace is sitting, I guess it's like a little booth. There's supposed to be this like little booth where um, you put a quarter in and then like a film plays. And I guess like, you know. The typical person who would go in here would probably watch this and jack off or whatever, but obviously... Like, like, like the goat acting like he doesn't know what these booths are. Like, <laughs> I guess there's these booths at these stores that... Well, like, I mean, I'm sure there's some place in the world and probably some place still right now where they exist in America, but, like, I've never heard... Like, I've heard of adult bookstores or, like, where you went and bought pornos and dildos and stuff, but I've, have you ever heard of this type of thing? Like, known about... Well, it, I mean, like, I've, I've heard about it. I basically, I basically do know it from film, but I think right. you and I are kind of, like, part of that... The first generation that kind of grew up as this was really dying out anyways, right? right? right. With the internet and VHS, and yeah. there was no need to go sit in this booth and do it when you can just take that shit home. And... Yeah. I guess that is true. I think this is a little bit before our time, but... It, it, Plus, it, I never lived in, like, Times Square, you know? So. Right. But, um... But, yeah, like, I like how the the, ki- the the killer guy... And apparently this is, like, what he what he came up with, the actor came up with in his audition was to come up behind her and kind of touch her shoulders and you know, say all this stuff, because, like, apparently the vibe that I get, and there wasn't a whole lot of conversation there before the cops kind of bust in and shoot him dead, but the the gist I got was the reason he was setting up this uh, interview with this TV reporter was he actually found her attractive, and he thought he was going to seduce her, or, or possibly, you know, get into a Charles Bronson <laughs> type situation, <laughs> like, but, um, it was very, very odd, but, uh, but she played it great, I thought, in that scene, as far as, like, she, I mean, she really looked like she was scared for her life, and, like, in a, in a, like, a really realistic, like, almost in shock kind of way. Yeah, I mean, even right here, like, the look on her face, it's, it's, she's really giving it her all, and yeah. they also talk in the, like, in the trivia about how she really did feel just uncomfortable to be in an adult bookstore, like, that right. was kind of dead on for D. Wallace, even, that's not, and you can see it in the performance that she's not comfortable there. Yeah, because there's a later scene in the movie we'll get to when it happens, but I guess, you know, they were going the, the whole kind of drive-in grindhouse-type route with just having a lot of na- naked extras for no reason, and she kind of refused to shoot the scene. Yeah. And uh, I, I know, you know, it was really just for the camera purposes. They tried to, do like, do things, put price stickers and stuff over the nudity on the boxes and stuff at the adult bookstore just, you know, because it's an R rating, you know, type thing. But, uh, but yeah, like, I mean, that was a real porno store that they shot in, and all this merchandise on the shelves was real stuff, you know? 
It's interesting because that gives me an opportunity to, to tell my D Wallace story. Um, oh, I mean, I do. I've, I obviously find D Wallace attractive, but I mean, like you said too, it's growing up. She played the mom in so many mm-hmm. movies that I loved and things, and so I got a chance to meet her a couple years ago, and she's just as awesome as you'd hope when you meet her. And I, you know, I I saw her at a local horror convention, and she has like more eight by tens than anyone because you start to look at it and you realize, jam, she's been in everything, yeah. right? And I told her, like, you know, I was like, it's, it, this is really weird meeting you because you're like my movie mom. You know, I grew up and you were always the mom. And I just think of you as kind of a second mom. And she says, like, you know, I, I hear that a lot, you know, and she's now actually she has kind of a side career. I don't know if you know, she writes like kind of new agey self-help books. So she has those on the table, too, and sells them. But uh, so I'm looking at all these eight by tens and I'm trying to think what to pick. And eventually I pick one from Cujo. That's the one I buy from her of her holding her son and screaming. And she signs it, and she signs it, Trevor, bite me, uh, D. Wallace. <laughs> and I was, and I think, and it's just, it's like actually on my wall still, and I, I love that, that, but it was so weird because yeah. that's not what you expect from her, right? But, um, well, but yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, obviously, at a certain point, she accepted her, her lot and yeah. the fandom she's part of, but it was just such a weird thing because I, I just always think of her as so wholesome to the point where when she was in that booth and you see her get like kind of disturbed by what she's seeing because it's D. Wallace, I actually feel bad for her. I'm just like, Ugh, I don't want her to have to watch that. Yeah, there's just there's certain characteristics, I think. I guess, you know, obviously there's actors training and things and whatnot, but it's also a lot of their own personality and, and you know, spirit and soul as a person shines through in the performance too and uh yeah i mean there's just certain things like that that you know i you know i don't think you know many other actresses could kind of convey like you you kind of have to be actually naturally repulsed by that kind of shit to be able to play it that way you know yeah but i would say if anyone gets a chance to meet her definitely do it because she's she's great in real life very kind with her fans and took time to talk to me and it was pretty much everything I could hope for. That's so you know, there's a lot of these conventions and chances to meet people and stuff. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, you know, you, you do hear a lot of great stories, but unfortunately you also hear a lot of bad ones. And mm-hmm. that's kind of, you know, my, unfortunately there's a, there used to be, always, there used to be conventions literally within five minute walking distance from where I live. But unfortunately I was extremely poor back then. So I never went to them. But, uh, but like now I could probably afford to go to one, but there's none around, but also too, I'm kind of like, you know, it sucks sometimes if you meet somebody and they're just like, you know, I mean, I don't expect them to be excited to see you and want to be your best friend, but like, you know, you hear these stories of people that just like, they seem grumpy to be there and they barely want to sign your thing, even though you're paying them. I haven't had too many bad experiences. I've definitely had experiences where the person just doesn't seem like that interested, right? But right. I guess that's a little better than being rude. Right. In terms of what you're talking about, at one, at one convention I went to, I know someone who I just didn't even approach because I'll I'll actually kind of watch for a while and see what they seem like with other people right. to get a sense of, like, do I want to talk to this person? Right. And I'll tell you who seemed like a total grump and just was like, why am I here? This is below me. It was Tom Noonan. Oh, um, I, I could and see I that. just yeah, and it was I, I just got such a bad vibe from him. I was like, yeah, you know what? I, I like some of his work, but I'm not even going to bother going up to that guy with if that's the attitude he has. And you know, it, and you know, and to be and to be totally fair, could have just been a bad day for him. That's right, always that's the case. I was about to say. You know, yeah, but at the same time, that's the only time you're ever going to meet him in your life. So it's right. kind of like you know, you you don't want to have a bad experience, basically. Yeah. Um. But yeah, so here this point in the story is kind of we have, you know, I don't know exactly what you would call, call these their job titles. I'd say Dennis Dugan is possibly a news director at the station. And uh, but I'm not sure really who the woman is, you know, exactly her job. title. But basically, they're kind of picking up the slack after what happened with D. Wallace. They go to, 
I guess that was the the killer's flop house or whatever. And we see all the uh, the newspaper clippings and also some like kind of hand drawn art of like some places and stuff, which leads them to um, Patrick McInerney. And uh, unless I'm just getting mistaken here, isn't Patrick McInerney? Uh, uh, isn't he the guy? Was he in the original Avengers TV show? Yep, that's him, John yeah. Steed. He played yeah. with him in the original uh, Patrick when he uh, was like, I don't know. I wonder. Like, I'm not sure how much of a get he was for that at this point, but I would right. think it was a pretty big deal to have him in this film because he was definitely right. a big. I mean, maybe not never a big star in America, but right. definitely a very big star over in uh, the UK, and uh, you know, well enough known that I'm sure he was the, the big name while they were making this. Oh, I could definitely see that for sure. Um, but yeah, he, he, he's kind of like a new, he plays like a kind of a new agey therapy doctor. And, uh, you know, cause, cause the thing is the howling, there is a book, but apparently they didn't really base the movie on the book that much from what I understand. But, um, basically what Joe Dante was saying was, um, I guess it was kind of like, there was a lot of like, I guess therapy was like really in vogue at this time that they made this movie. Yeah. And a big part of it was, you know, re- repression, repression. And everybody assumed that like all kind of human psyche and disorder and, you know, really unruly behavior was all kind of from bottled up, uh, you know, repression and whatnot. So, uh, so they could, they, they kind of, you know, go to this, I don't know really what you would call him. I mean, obviously he's probably a psychiatrist, but he's kind of like a famous guy writing books and he has this retreat and whatnot. And, uh, you know, they kind of consult him on the, uh, the, you know, the shit that they find in the killer's house or whatever. And obviously D Wallace is traumatized. Here she is coming back on the air after this experience of, you know, meeting the serial killer, the cops busting in and, um, pretty much shooting him dead, like, right next to her. Like, obviously, she could have been shot, too. She was lucky to get out of there alive. But uh, she basically just, you know, kind of freezes up. Um, and obviously, this this scene, uh, you know, she's having flashbacks, too, of the porn she saw in the theater, isn't she? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, you almost get the sense, like, maybe seeing porn was even more traumatizing to her than almost dying from a serial killer. That is true, because she almost has, like, because there was earlier, we kind of talked through it when we were talking about meeting, meeting her at the convention stuff, but there was a scene where she kind of takes a nap on the uh, couch at her house, and she mm-hmm. starts really being traumatized by these images. And the porn that she's seeing was actually a fake porn, I guess, because, you know, you can mm-hmm. show, like, real frontal nudity and stuff. But uh, apparently Joe Dante said him and his buddies, uh, it's kind of like, it, it's like a rape porn too, which is really Yeah, it's know, a pretty rough, rough. Thing, yeah. But apparently Joe Dante shot it in his garage and, um, and you know, just just probably like a few minutes of it or whatever. And like, yeah. he had that really worn kind of grindhouse look to it. And uh, he said like they scratched it up by hand and all that kind of shit to make it look like it was all beat up. I'm not sure I trust any organization. You should never trust any organization that Kevin McCarthy is like in charge of. You know, There's, that's just bad news in general. Yeah, I mean, I'm assuming that you know, people who are listening to this show, they're probably really familiar with this movie, at least seen it at least once before. So you know, but um, you know, I, I was kind of getting this feeling. Oh, here's the scene where D. Wallace goes to talk to uh, Patrick uh, McInerney here, but um, you know. I don't think it was, you know, obviously you get them because it's a B-movie and it's a genre film and stuff. Kevin McCarthy, you get them. But, like, I kind of feel like, you know, thematically, because obviously the thing he's most famous for is Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And I felt like that was like kind of another layer of this movie was, um, 
you know, you have the opening part, which is really about the serial killer obsession, abduction, whatever type thing. But uh, before we really, you know, before we really get into the point where we're seeing people in full-on werewolf suits and stuff, kind of the middle part of this movie, uh, where uh, D. Wallace goes to this colony and stuff, this self-help, self-relax, whatever colony, I almost feel like, it, like you know, and we're starting to realize, you know, who's a werewolf and who's not. It, it, a lot of it kind of plays to me almost like a body snatcher type film. Like, what do you think yeah. about that analogy? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I mean, I don't. I wonder if Dante thought about that much. I wouldn't be surprised if he did because he's a very smart guy, and, yeah. and Dante's up there with like Tarantino and Landis as the people I could just listen talk to about movies, mm-hmm. uh, or talk you know listen to them talk about movies because like they, they just know everything you know, and you're like, damn, how do you have that much time to watch every movie and memorize it all? <laughs> but um, but I also think like you know what the other thing about land about the other thing about Dante and why Kim Carthy's in this is wouldn't you say goat that what we kind of take for granted now. Um, really started with Dante in, in the idea of like a horror fanboy getting to grow up and make horror movies, and then just oh, being yeah. like, you know what? I'm going to cast all my heroes. I'm going to fill my scripts with references to other horror movies. Like obviously everybody does that now, but that kind of started right around this time. And with Dante, like y'all, there's so many characters in this movie named after directors of famous horror films. Then he's casting John Carradine. He's casting Kevin McCarthy. Uh, he was big on that, right? Bringing his old heroes in, and it really kind of starts here. And now everyone follows that lead. Yeah, I mean, obviously, in the most obvious example that in this film, uh, even though we haven't seen him, he plays a small part, is actually the part that Dick Miller plays. Um, and, you know, he had, he had done, I, th- I think he was also on Hollywood Boulevard, but basically every Joe Dante movie that, you know, he w- he was in, Dick Miller, you know, uh, Joe Dante always, you know, wanted him to be, uh, <laughs> the character's name to be Walter Paisley, which mm-hmm. was, uh, you know, Dick Miller's character's name and uh, what was it, Bucket of Blood? I think it was. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, but I, I mean, I think with Dante, obviously, there's a big component of when you hear him talk and stuff. I mean, you know, John Landis was kind of one of those fanboy directors, but I feel like he was like a little more conscious of not wearing it on his sleeve as much or whatever mm-hmm. whereas i think joe dante started out in such such a, a low budget arena you know i mean john landis did too but he kind of shot up to the big time i think a little bit quicker than dante did and mm-hmm. uh i yeah i think joe dante was very much like you know this could be my last picture i ever make i'm gonna throw in dick miller i'm gonna throw in you know john carradine here right here and just like just everything he's just wearing that shit completely on his sleeve you know those influences yeah. and love and if we could talk about Carradine for a second, first of all, what an introduction, right? Yeah. That like kind of like yodeling yell. But also, <laughs> yeah. you know, I don't think it's, it's – I'm not speaking out of turn to say the later years of Carradine's life are full of a lot of crap performances. Right, right. This is definitely like a diamond in that rough – you know, this oh, is yeah. one of his last great performances. I, I, I love his presence in this film. And I'm glad he got to do one last great horror role before uh, bowing out, you know. Well, no, and there's something about John Carradine in this film. He almost looks like a werewolf even when he's, like, a human. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah I mean, obviously, you know, it's pretty... I mean, you know, like, uh, like years of alcoholism will do yeah. that, I guess. But, um, but yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with what you said 100% just because, you know, all those other movies that John Carradine was, was doing towards the end of his life, you know, they were, you know, most of them were shit movies made by people where there probably was hardly a script, if a script at all. It was like, you know, it just was a bad situation where it's like, okay, obviously he's at this point in his life and, you know, got some problems, got some troubles going on, but it shows that, you know, 
as low budget as even this movie was, if if it's in the hands, of, you know, if you're in put in the hands of a director who knows what the hell he's doing, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you could be a part of something good, no matter kind of like how trouble and how much maybe luster has, uh, you know, worn off your star, so to speak. And and who respects you and is a fan of you. Oh, yeah. I'm sure a lot of people cast him because they're like, oh yeah, that's the horror guy. We're making a horror movie. Right. Just get him. But it goes a lot deeper than that for Dante. Yeah, just to put on the, I know, I know, uh, kind of the, well, I mean, he's not an alcoholic and doesn't have problems and all that. But I'm just saying, in terms of somebody that they cast now in horror movies, was um, uh, Reggie Bannister from the Phantasm films. Mm-hmm. And I know he said publicly, and I don't, you know, I, I haven't exactly followed up all his IMDb credits, but you know, he was he was starting to get out of the the cameo business, so to speak, of you know, because these people, you know, they have a you know, maybe it's a good movie, maybe it's not, but they don't have much money. But they know if they put Reggie in it, you know, it will get a certain audience and whatever. And you know, yeah. at the end of the day, I guess probably Reggie was getting tired of it because, you know, whether it's good script or not, it probably isn't the best script if it's a super low budget movie. Just to be realistic there, but even if it is a good script, it's like there, there's not much creativity, you know, on the creative process for these these veteran actors to come in for six hours or whatever. You know what I mean? Like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you totally in this opening kind of beach party shot. You you get way more carotene than you think you would. <laughs> yeah. It does look like kind of a raging party, though. I mean, I, I might hang out, you know, a little bit here. Well, that's another thing you don't really see in movies a lot too now, which was a huge deal in the in the seventies. Was um, in early eighties too, but mostly in the seventies was there was a lot of movies for some reason. I guess it was that thing of kind of showing the people in the middle of the country, you know, Hey, look how cool California is. But like, there was a lot of movies that had beach party bonfire scenes in them. (laughs) I mean, even, even the karate kid had a, one of his most pivotal, pivotal moments at a beach bonfire. Yeah. Of course here, here we have, uh, Carradine going all crazy and stuff, getting out of hand, and obviously they play him off like uh, he's a crazy old man or whatever in front of the guests, but, you know, obviously there's there's a sinister dynamic going on at this colony. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, um, out of all these kind of colony scenes, this opening intro, you know, when you do a lot of these scenes and movies like this, kind of the purpose of function or whatever of this scene in the story is kind of introduce you to all the characters that are kind of lurking around in the shadows and all the weirdos. I think Dante did a good job with the amount of time he spends on each of them, you know, and kind of tips the hat of like, who's the weirdo. Cause like right off the bat, when you see the super whacked out chick in the the leather bra <laughs> with uh, wolf teeth uh, necklaces and shit hitting on uh, fake Tom Atkins, a.k.a. Christopher Stone, uh, D. Wallace's husband in the movie and later to be in real life, too. Um, you kind of, you know, without being too arch, too stereotypical, giving too much away, you kind of get in that scene who everybody is, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, and again, we're not even to like an, a werewolf element yet, but no. he builds like it, it's, it's a funny scene, but then he also builds like the creep level really well. Like you're starting to get a sense of, geez, something's not right here. Yeah. Unless you are fake Tom Atkins and then you got that chick hitting on you, which exactly. isn't the worst thing in the world, you know? Yeah, he was, uh, you know, he, he, he wasn't jumping all in, but he wasn't exactly running away either. <laughs> Yeah, real Tom Atkins would have jumped all. Oh in. yeah, real Tom, real Tom Atkins would have brought a sixer of a Miller Lite to that party. 
The only difference is if it had been real Tom Atkins, like every girl at the party would have been coming out oh, to him. Yeah. That's just I, the. Please, Tom, could you uh, talk to us in your grizzled voice and uh, <laughs> blow some camel on filters, smoke in our faces? Because <laughs> that's what a real man does. And uh, you know, it's you know, it's kind of these horror titles that come and they go, and you pick something that sounds a little you know scary or whatnot but i i have to say this is the perfect title for this movie the howling because there's so many scenes uh literally at this colony here out in the woods uh where they're kind of set up the movie like they're just constant screaming and howling from werewolves you know out in the the woods and whatnot mm-hmm. but uh, i mean it was also the name of the book so you know right, they're well, kind of locked in anyways true. well that, i'm just saying it's the perfect title for this film <laughs> Considering apparently this is not based on the book whatsoever. Yeah, but not oddly enough, and I'm sure we'll uh, when there's like a law later too. I'm sure we'll get into the bizarre uh, history of this franchise. But yeah, oh, this, yeah. the the book was also adapted again as Howling Four. Right. Um, I can't remember what the subtitle is, but uh, it's yeah, it's like basically like a, Howling Four is essentially a remake of this one. That's supposed to be a closer version to the book. Right. It's bad. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I, I haven't read the book, so I can't attest to which one's closer. I mean, to me, it doesn't feel that much different story-wise, right. but it's basically just watching a much more inept version of this. Well, I'm sure even as low budget as this film is, Part 4 probably had a quarter of the budget this did. Uh, part 4 is one of the strangest transformations I've ever seen, where the, the fake Tom Atkins character in this, you know, the husband character, yeah. I mean, spoiler alert, sorry everyone, but like later when he, was, when he would turn... In the in the number four version, he like melts. He like the his mm. human form melts into like a into a puddle of goo, mm-hmm. and then a wolf rises up out of the goo. And I was just like, God, that's one of the strangest things <laughs> I've ever seen. That sounds like something that belongs more in Lamberto Bava's Demons. <laughs> it does. Yeah. A Halloween movie. You know, we get we get the uh, the great scene of her coming out, you know, to investigate and then running back in. Then we get the. Uh, the creepy brother of the uh, enchantress trick, uh, enchantress chick that really wants to bone Tom Atkins. Uh, now, if you weren't sure we're watching '80s movie, I think yeah. D. Wallace's outfit here will will clarify that for you. Yeah, she got the uh, the what do you call it? The cutoff jeans that are like super high, mm-hmm. but still really not showing that much. In all honesty, no. Just playing tennis in like a sweater with like an undershirt though, like yeah, yeah. it's like a sweatshirt with like a button-up shirt underneath it. That was a big eighties thing. Now Slim Pickens, I mean, one of those personalities where don't you just get happy when like Slim Pickens comes on screen or anything? Well, you know, I, I he's great. First of all, I won't say he's great, but I don't think Slim Pickens had any clue what fucking movie he was. In. <laughs> I like. I think. I think. You know, they, they probably sent him the script a month beforehand. He's like, "Oh, sure, I'll do it," and all that. And then, you know, he gets there and he's never read the script. He just looks at his scene. Oh, I'm going to talk to a couple ladies playing tennis. Okay, that'll be a good time. Hey, how you doing, Slim Pickens? Mm. We got to talk about another great cameo here. Yep. Actually, from uh, I, you know, there's so many different credits or whatever. Like, what what would you call John Sales in relation to this movie? Was he? A co-writer, or what was he? Because well, it sounds like he. It sounds like he basically. Yeah, it sounds like when Dante came on, he basically became the primary writer. But it's one of those, you know, arbitration things where the the previous writer had to stay kind of co-credited. So I don't think they never worked together. But I think what we're seeing is like the the final version would be sales draft. You know, right? But he's even in like the special features on the DVD talking Mm -hmm. about it. So I mean, he clearly, like I said, there is numerous drafts. You know, 
different iterations. In this. But yeah, he has, a, he has a nice cameo here as the coroner. And John Sales, what an interesting career, right? Because, oh, I mean, yeah. you know, it's, it's interesting because I'm sure there's like a lot of people that are John Sales fans that don't even know they kind of started in the low budget monster movie realm. Well, um, because well, he really went on to be a very acclaimed screenwriter writing kind of more, you know, I, and again, I love horror. So this I don't mean this like the way it sounds, but more kind of sophisticated crime dramas yeah. and things like that. But uh, but also don't forget, he never left that behind. He's the guy that wrote that really weird Jurassic 4 script that had right. like the commando dinosaurs. So that's what I was saying. Like he got to the point where he was writing and directing what I would consider, quote unquote, Oscar caliber films because you know some of them were nominated for various things. And, and Lone uh, Star is a great film. Yeah, oh, I love Lone yeah. Star. To me, Lone Star, you know, I understand there's a time to kill and all that, but to me, Lone Star is the real McConaughey star making vehicle and all that. But um, but yeah, like he—that's the thing that's kind of cool about John Sales is he—he he doesn't distance himself or or talk bad about his beginning because you know he also didn't he write Alligator as well? Yeah, I, yeah, yeah. That's such a great script too. Yeah. What a great movie. No. Uh, <laughs> oh, I mean, well, even now, like right now, he's working on like the new Django movie with Franco Nero, you know, oh, writing yeah, and di- right. writing and directing it. Yeah. So, I mean, very cool guy, too. I remember seeing him on David Letterman and probably like around the time Lone Star came out. He came in like jeans and like a really <laughs> worn out <laughs> button up shirt and shit. <laughs> yeah, he, he doesn't give a shit about anything. So, I mean, he yeah. doesn't, you know, I don't think he cares how people perceive him here here we have this weird hunting party because like they're kind of i I think the people at the colony who obviously we find out later all werewolves they're kind of they're kind of putting on this ruse of um there being a coyote problem around there (laughs) and uh we got but obviously it's werewolves and whatever and uh killing the cows and doing whatever now, so now this guy with fake Tom Atkins here was apparently what the star of some big like commercial campaign around this time or something. I was gonna say he's so familiar looking to me, but I couldn't really place him in any other. Movie. I feel like that's what they. I feel like that's what they say about him on the special features of this. Mm. He was known for some big like liquor commercial or something at the time. I can't remember what the product was, but I can see that. It's kind of awesome that they're, they're out going going hunting in the day for supposed foxes or whatever they're hunting, and the, they actually bring fucking John Carradine with them. I was just thinking how much I I don't hunt, but if anything would get me to hunt, it's the it's the idea of hunting with John Carradine and Slim Pickens. Oh yeah, that's a that's a good weekend. Yeah, I wouldn't even bring any ammunition for the rifle because you, <laughs> I mean, you wouldn't need it. You'd just be sitting there watching them all the time. Nothing else. I would just be terrified that one of them is going to accidentally shoot me. Yeah. <laughs> Now what, what what is Slim Pickens' background? Was he a country music star or what? I believe so, right? Yeah, that's what I thought. Should have done my Slim Pickens research. I never could, because obviously, obviously that's a stage name, but it seems more like a um, like a musical stage name than an actor stage name. Mm-hmm. And he's such a good old boy too. I couldn't <laughs> couldn't imagine him start out just acting. But uh, you can see on the special edition, uh, the Blu-ray of this, uh, they do one of them horrors, uh, Hallow Grounds. And also, i just seen there's a guy on YouTube. Uh, I watched it with sound off, the video, but uh, he looked like he was a foreign guy. He looked like he was an Italian guy, went on vacation or something. 
a lot of these locations are not only still around, but they look exactly the same. It's kind of, yeah. it's kind of interesting. Yeah, because it's interesting. Like a lot of those horror hollowed grounds, it's always um, Sean Clark trying mm-hmm. to find the location and be like, well, this is where it used to be, you right. know. And the howling, he had a lot to work with. And I mean, I was I was actually kind of excited watching that, being feel like, oh, I would love to go to that cabin because it looks still so similar. Oh, it looks exactly it, it, the same. It would be pretty like it would feel pretty special to like walk into it and and get to you know think like, oh man, this is where they stood and everything. No, we didn't really point it out, but this this is actually one of the things that made this movie stand out to me a lot as a young kid. It always be on cable and kind of stuck it in my memory was she keeps having a lot of flashbacks obviously to the killer and whatnot but she keeps remembering the smiley face stickers that are left everywhere Mm -hmm. um which are also kind of like a newer thing around that time yeah like uh apparently dante was like really pissed about them they were like real popular at the time or something Mm -hmm. and he he didn't like them but uh that image of the smiley face is what really and uh the killer kind of leaves the uh the calling card of that sticky or that sticker there like everywhere mm. he goes or everywhere he tends to kill someone i guess or just whatever but it, it it's kind of an interesting character thing when you think about it mm-hmm. now you know what's interesting about this this scene here is that, well for i mean any scene with dick miller is interesting but dick miller has said that this is his favorite character he's ever played yeah, and i find that so shocking. strange because yeah. it's there's not much to it but then i was thinking like I wonder if he created like a whole world of this character. And, and when I heard him say that, that this is his favorite character, in my head, suddenly I wanted nothing more than a movie all about this character, right? The kind of like well, you cynical guy. Who, oh, yeah, a guy who runs like a parent, like an occult bookstore and seems like he doesn't really believe in this stuff, yeah. but maybe does and isn't telling us the truth, you know? And and what a great Dick Miller movie that would be, you know? It could almost be like a Cole Jack the Night Stalker type situation. Yeah, sure. Oh, we got a Forrest Ackerman here, too. Oh, yeah, Forry. He's here. Holding his own magazine, as he probably would yeah. be. Also, another nice little cameo, if you want to call it that, is that when the when those nuns walked into the shop, we actually saw uh, the the grandma skeleton from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre house. Oh wow! Because the production designer on this film was Robert Burns, who also did the production designing on Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and he he brought that with him and stuck it in this store, so you can see it pretty clear on the Blu-ray. That's interesting. I know there is like that awesome like demon mask on the counter, which looked a lot to me like the vampire from Fright Night, but it had horns added to it, which I thought was interesting. But yeah, the... I will say though, I'll just let like I'm I'm actually working on a writing project right now, and I'll admit that uh, I don't know what'll ever happen with that or if it'll see the light of day. But I have a character in it that I completely based on this Dick Miller character because of what really? I just said about how I wished I'd been able to see more of it. And uh, so I kind of was like, well, you know what? I'll just do that. I'll take that character and run with it. So, Well, it's very interesting because, like you said, he does seem like a skeptic. But at the same time, like, he knows all the shit and um, <laughs> he kind of fills them in and gets up. I mean, he, in reality, he's kind of filling us in as the audience. But yeah. he fill, he fills the characters in, uh, Dennis Dugan and uh, the other woman from the news station. You could, you could definitely see him be like the Peter Vincent kind of thing, right? Of right. Like, he's a skeptic, but because he, he, because he has to know this stuff for, like, his job. Then he might actually come in handy when it turns out to be real. Yeah, I mean, in like a, in a better. I mean, I actually kind of, I actually like Howling too. I'll admit, but yeah, for different like, reasons, though. Yeah, obviously movie. for different reasons. Pretty much the reasons being Sybil Danning in that outfit. Yeah. But uh, I mean, in a cool world, there's like a version of Howling too that's about the Dick Miller character realizing that oh crap, 
I have to like fight these things now, you know. Yeah, I mean, it seems like he's clearly reading all these books and he has a knowledge base. But like you said, we don't really know, you know, what he believes and doesn't believe. We, we got to get into some full Tom Atkins, and, and by Tom Atkins, I mean Christopher Stone here. Uh, this is when you could really, really see Atkins playing this part. Um, he goes mm-hmm. on the hunt, um, and this is before he's been infected by the werewolf, I believe, right? Yeah, because he gets infected, I think, walking back from this. But they kind of set it up early, earlier. He doesn't eat meat. He's pretty much a vegetarian. But he still went on this hunt. You know, I guess you could call it the peer pressure. But I think it kind of plays into this colony, this kind of cult. You know what I mean? Influencing. You know, obviously they're called a werewolf and whatnot. But obviously there's strange things going to influence and people doing things they wouldn't normally do. So he goes on the hunt. He shoots. It looked like a big jackrabbit or something. And... uh the one kind of weird goober guy that's always hanging around, he says, oh, I'll take it to my sister, which is the weird witchy woman. You know, she'll strip it and clean it for you. And then he goes in there right away, and, you know, she starts trying to basically have sex with him. And, you know, he he, he rebuffs her. And uh, interestingly enough, like, you know, he got a little bit of a smooch in there, but finally he pushed her off. Now he goes to walk back and, you know, to his cabin, and this is... Uh, you know, the middle of the night, this is kind of like the American werewolf in London moment, like the beginning on the moors of that film. It's kind of like that moment where we're just tracking and watching it. Okay, now this werewolf, Trev, who do you think this werewolf is? Do you think it was the woman going after him to, you know, kind of... Kind I always of, in my head thought it was the brother. Because the brother's watching, but, but like, I could see the... I don't know, it's like... The brother kind of wanted him to go in there and bang his sister for some strange, weird reason. But, well, I mean, they don't seem like the most, like, normal, you no. know, brother-sister, so... No. But, uh... That thought kind of, you know, went through my head watching this the other night. Like, you know... I mean, maybe it's just Carity, not on a bender, you know? Yeah, I, was, I mean, it really could be anywhere, because clearly somebody is, you know, out, you know, doing mischievous shit. Like, they're, the werewolf colony is not keeping its members under control, but... You know, the thought went through my head the other night. You know, could it be the woman trying to convert him so, you know, she could have a possible mate or whatever? But I will say the way, and again, this credit to Robert Burns, the production designer, but the, the cabin of the brother and sister and the earlier moment when uh, fake Tom Atkins was in it, it really does have this, like, kind of cool fairy tale feel to it. It really does oh, feel yeah. like you're in, like, a Hansel and Gretel or something, like this witch's lair, and, you know, the, you, can, you can feel the danger of it, but also what's enticing about it. I mean, beyond the fact that she's very attractive, I mean, obviously that's what's lulling you in, but it feels cozy and scary at the same time. And, and I'm, I can't remember if you first see it in that, that scene that just passed where he went in the cabin or maybe the, the later scene in the cabin, but there's, there's a big open can of, you know, of course some Joe Dante humor. There's a big open can of wolf chili, wolf mm. brand chili in there. And uh, later on, you know, when they cut to like a, shot a slim picking somewhere he's eating wolf brand chili so what did you think about that was that i mean it doesn't i mean if as someone who's seen and loves gremlins too i know that subtlety is not always what's on joe dante's mind you know yeah. so i mean he, he'll go for the obvious joke too it's he has no problem with that so what did you think of uh i guess this is a good enough time as any let's get into the dennis dugan conundrum here <laughs> Dennis Dugan was a uh, actor, uh, mostly a comedic actor, but he did some serious stuff. Uh, I think at this time, like I said earlier, he um, 
they did a spinoff of a character from Rocker, Rockford Files, which was some other kind of detective, and he had his own show, and then did appearances in TV movies, and uh, whatnot. But um, but yeah, he's in here, and it, you know, he kind of it's kind of interesting to me that you know, and of course Joe Dante, you know, he I could see him wanting to kind of play against expectations, but Dennis Dugan's kind of a badass hero in this movie. Yeah, but he's a, for people who are not familiar who he is. He's very—I won't go as far as call the man nerdy, but he's a very kind of you know slight, sh- kind of short on the shorter side, skinny you know man. What, yeah, what do you think about that casting? I you know it it works in the it works in the film. I'm a, and I'm always a fan of that kind of like that trope of a a nerdy guy becoming the hero as the film goes along. I think it's kind of maybe more mind blowing to people. And I'm sure this is like something when you say we're going to get to it, um, to tell people that the hero of this film is the director of Grown Ups and Grown Ups 2, you know? Right. <laughs> he, <I> mean, <laughs> uh, that's like, he's really like, now at this point in his career, he's really known as like uh, uh, the Adam Sandler director. He's done, uh, I mean, he started with Happy Gilmore and Big Daddy, which are ones right. I like. But, you know, he's also gone on to do some of the dreadful things like Jack and Jill and You Don't Mess With the Zohan and the, yeah, the grown some of the worst so, ones. Yeah. But, yeah, he had a career as a director for, I want to say, roughly, I think his first directing credit was around 87. And he didn't do too big of projects, a lot of TV, a lot of kind of TV movie-ish type stuff. And then somehow, uh, what was the first one? Was it Happy Gilmore was the first one? Well, that was the first Adam Sandler one. I mean, right. the first, I will say the first movie he directed was Problem Child, oh, which, you know, yeah. it's OK. But then he followed that up with a, a very underrated film, in my opinion, uh, Brain Donors. <laughs> I don't know if you're a Brain Donors fan, but no, I'm I actually... familiar with it. Oh, really? No. It's a it, it's like a remake of Night at the Opera, the Marx Brothers film um, where they with starring John Turturro. And uh, they tried to kind of like make like a modern Marx Brothers film. And it's actually a lot of fun. It's kind of got a cult following now. I'll have to yeah, track that down. But he definitely did a lot of TV work before kind of uh, doing, yeah, he did Happy Gilmore, then Beverly Hills Ninja, and then really became a part of that crew. Yeah. Like, it seemed like Sandler for, like, because I saw there was some shit, unless I'm getting my whatever memory mixed up here, I think he even did, like, some shit with Billy D. Williams. <laughs> like, that's, I mean, he didn't, he didn't have, like, the hottest career as a director is basically what I'm hitting at here. And then all of a sudden he got on the Adam Sandler train and like for a good chunk of years he was directing a movie probably almost every year you know a, a big theatrical release yeah. type movie. Well, and you can't blame. I mean, it's, I don't I don't like Adam Sandler films anymore, but it sounds like if you're on that train you're gonna stay on it because Adam Sandler looks out for his buddies and right. says like, hey, let's go make this you know these movies in Hawaii and not really do anything and we'll get <laughs> yeah. tons of money. Can't really blame him though because for a long time yeah. he did well. I mean. Even though he kind of had to go to the Netflix business model, because I feel like the audience wants more of an event-type picture. They don't want that casual, whatever, movie mm-hmm. going thing. I, like the, Supposedly, the Netflix stuff he did got tons and tons of uh, mm-hmm. viewers or whatever, which is what Netflix wants, you know? Yeah. All right. Now, this Tom Atkins finally in Tom Atkins mode here. Christopher Stone laying it down with the witch woman. They're both completely buck-naked having sex next to this roaring fire. Now, this is kind of what I was getting at with this being a body snatcher movie was, you know, when he after he gets the bite or whatever, um, like his his personality completely changed. Like he was eating meat at the picnic with uh, D. Wallace and other woman and stuff. And, uh, you know, a lot of werewolf movies, at least until this time I was familiar with, it was more like the person was themselves 
and they dread it whenever the full moon would come. But it, this is really more like when you become a werewolf, your whole personality changes. Mm-hmm. Like it almost is more like a full body, whatever personality takeover. You know, and it's even kind of. I mean, it, it, it's not the only one, but it's it's fairly rare for werewolf films to have the people you know enjoy being a werewolf and. Right. You know, kind of live it up. Not that they all do. I and mean, we saw John Carradine wanting to kill himself earlier. But for the most part, these people are into it and uh, are happy to recruit and, and happy to live this lifestyle. Well, it seemed like, too, and there's some kind of some dialogue later on or something. But it seemed like Carradine's problem was the reason he was depressed, kind of become an old drunk werewolf, so to speak, was it seemed like he missed the days when they could run free and just kill whoever they wanted and hunt. And, like, apparently this colony was trying to stay relatively low-key and feeding mm-hmm. off of animals and whatnot, and he, you know he didn't agree with that, I guess, or you know found that torturous, or yeah. Okay, so you know we have this uh, love scene, which is very skin and max acts to a certain point until they start kind of wolfing out and getting these long fangs, and then like Christopher Stone literally big drool all over that lady's <laughs> face, probably <laughs> like a big chunk of drool comes out. But uh, I thought this was interesting, you know, uh, to turn the sex scene into, like, this really kind of monstrous, animalistic thing, you know. Mm -hmm. Very primal and, you know. And the contact lenses they put on the actors in this movie are really, like, kind of, I don't know, really weird and and strange and not what you usually see contact lenses look like in films. So, we should. We haven't even mentioned that this was this was all uh, Rob Bottin. Yeah, that's too. what I was just about to say. We, yeah. we should talk about that. And I, I like this kind of. You know, this is kind of like the intermediate or the beginning stages. I thought mm-hmm. this makeup in this, this. Yeah, I think she looks, she looks great. Well, this is weird, but uh, yeah, we have a, a an animated sequence suddenly. But. Yeah, and, and like they're they're going to originally when they shot. You know, there's some movies more of the full body werewolf suits. They, they were done as reshoots because they convince Avco to give them a little more money to go back and kind of spice things up. But initially they were trying to really show the werewolves, at least in the full body shots with the, uh, cause I think when they originally shot the movie, they only had heads and like hands to work with. Mm-hmm. So they were going to try to do a mix of actual animation and stop motion animation. And you can see a lot of the stop motion stuff on the uh, special features of the Blu-ray and all that. But that shot, you know, they kind of did the, and it was from a distance, but still, even the shot being a distance, especially on Blu-ray, it's painful that it, you know, they transform. It's it's completely animated there. Yeah. Is there any part? I mean, it doesn't. I don't know. It's it's not great, but it doesn't bother me that much either. It, it just is. It's like a sudden, bizarre, otherworldly feeling. You know, I can certainly think of people who it would take completely out of the movie. <coughs> source. Yes. But, um... Oh yes. <laughs> Millennial scumbags like the source. Yeah. We'll say it. <laughs> But uh, but I mean, I, there's something kind of cool about it because just because it's the kind of thing that nobody would ever allow them to do now, right. you know. Well, you know, you know what's funny is when I got this Blu-ray a couple years ago, and I had seen this movie, you know, a bunch of times over the years, but it was usually more on, um, you know, obviously low-fi, lower quality than this. So when I saw it in Blu-ray the first time a couple years ago, and I got this this Blu-ray, instead of being something that like kind of took me out of the movie, it. it 
kind of endeared me to it, and I really love the mm-hmm. stop motion stuff. And there's like a brief scene of it; you can barely see it. And I wish the stop motion stuff was was still in. And uh, Dante said on the special features they had to cut it because you know people were like, "Well, what movie did you get that footage?" Because it was so jarring that the yeah. the, the stop motion animation animated werewolves they move differently than the people in the suits and whatnot. But you know, I really kind of wish. In retrospect, they would have kept it in, even if it was like brief shots, because I don't know, there's something old timey charming. And I understand that's not where their mind was at at the time they were making this movie. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, the animated bit there and the really the stop motion shit, I would have loved to see more of in the finished film. Because it's really good stop motion animation puppets that you can see on the special features and whatnot. I do. I also want to give credit to. I like at this point in the film that with this character, the, you know, the other uh, woman investigating this, and then with uh, Dennis Dugan out there, and with D. Wallace. I like that we're at this. We're about halfway through or whatever now, and you still don't really know like who's the hero of the film, right? right. Or who's going to end up being like the main character that we're tracking. And I think Dante does a good job of keeping you on your toes a little bit to say like, well, who really is the person we should be caring the most about, or who's going to be their, our primary focus. Well, it's, it, I think this movie is really interesting too, because even American Werewolf in London, which this is, that's kind of the movie that everybody uh, compares this to, because they, you know, understandably so, they came out you know around the same time. But I like kind of how mature this movie is. It doesn't it doesn't focus on college students. It doesn't really focus on young people. These are all professionals. These are adults and uh, smart people. And like, you know, they get themselves into danger because they're investigating this serial killer, which turns out to be a werewolf which turns out to be linked to this colony of people these werewolf people and whatnot but uh you know so that investigation is what leads them into danger but i i I really like watching this movie it's to me it's a a breath of fresh air compared to you know it's a little bit more slower paced because the story unfolds you know but i like that you know we don't have too many like those quote-unquote dumb teenager moments that for most horror movies at the time have you know what i mean yeah no, yeah, totally. And I mean, even even the fact that this is kind of like a a vacation spot, I guess, in a way. You know, they had that party on the beach where, but other than that, like, you really don't have to put up with that annoying let's party, even though like <laughs> there's a killer amongst us type stupidity. You know, like these people mm. really don't know that there's any danger here. You know, there's no reason to think there would be. Oh, sorry, beer number two. Sorry, beer number two. Crack it. But yeah, here we have, and there definitely was had to be some set dressing here of this cabin to, to put all these pelts and shit and bones. Yeah, well, again, like you know, again, Robert Burns uh, doing his his work here, and giving it obviously a very Texas Chainsaw feel, you know, with the bones hanging and the animal pelts, and the man knows his business, you know. But it's kind of cool because it's. I can I think in a weird way it's 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 not so run down like you can tell somebody lives there like now you know mm-hmm. what I mean like it's a little spooky and scary but I think it's more scary that it looks more like somebody just stepped out for a while and probably yeah. will be back soon you know what I mean it's actually because like we said there's that video of you know uh sean clark going in here and things and it's a very like the cabin is laid out very oddly yeah. I think it's a very oddly designed little little building but but I would definitely like stay the night there just to say like, hey, I stayed in the Howling Cabin. Oh, for sure. And I love this too. You know, we kind of they kind of set up with Dick Miller with the kind of background he gave on. You know, a true werewolf can it doesn't have to wait for a full moon; it can turn, and that's why I call them shapeshifters. They can do anything they want. And I have to say, like this being the first full out that we actually like see 
kind of everything werewolf attack you know i mean obviously the christopher stone getting bit or whatever you know but that was kind of just like a quick like whatever but this is the first like really long protracted scene of terror of like a werewolf you know and like just seeing those shots of the the werewolf feet walking through the woods in the daytime i think there's actually possibly something scarier about it happening in the daytime what do you think about that I like so too, just because you don't expect it, right? Yeah. I mean, like, I mean, pretty much every werewolf film at this point had played on the idea of them only coming out on the full moon, and and this film even earlier, this it kind of sets it up to like a false sense of, uh, you know, like they in the previous transformation they showed the full moon, yeah. So you kind of go along with that and think, yeah, okay, that's the the rules again, and then he takes that away from you, you know. And I think that's clever and and makes it scarier because we're not expecting to see this attack happen. And I mean, I when I watch this. Um... The other night, it was probably the fourth time I've watched this since getting this Blu-ray, maybe two years ago. And for some reason, I always kind of forget. And I think it's not even really my memory as much as it... Oh, there's a sticker, so you know the serial killer lives here. But mm-hmm. um, you you do have that false sense of security. Because you think, like, when she stumbles upon his cabin and goes in and starts looking at stuff... You know, until they show that, that shot of those wolf feet creeping... You think in your mind, like, oh, you know, like all horror movies, you know, she's safe because it's a daylight. This is the scene where she finds the information out and then leaves, and then, but later she'll be in danger once it's nighttime. But it's like, no, it's like the werewolf kind of full out attacks here, you know, tries to get her here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's actually, it's actually a really great, um, action scene here or horror scene, attack scene, whatever. But, um, Well, I was going to bring this up anyway, but we might as well full out have this discussion now. Um, what do you think about, and obviously this is a debate that comes up a lot on this show, but what do you think about the whole, you know, practical versus CGI thing? I think I think this scene would be a lot more elaborate if, it, if this was made now in CGI and you would see the werewolf in full view. But I, I, I kind of think the less is more approach to really, you know, you only see his hands, a little bit of his head. I think it actually works more in the favor of the movie that they, you know, and this was probably one of those scenes before maybe they had the full suit or something, or maybe they just didn't want to show it this early in the movie. But but I think it works better that she kind of gets trapped in this little outside closet. And then great scene, too. Great special effects are chopping the werewolf's arm in half, but... What do you think? Do you think this is a case of the old school approach was better? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, you and I have had this debate plenty of times in our own time, you know, <laughs> I, the, the CGI versus practical and how I'm not as down on CGI as you are. But there's it's even with that said, you know, one thing I, I've never backed off on is that a monster movie is almost always better when it's less is more. Right. First right. of all, you want to you want to slowly reveal reveal the monster, show us piece by piece, I think. You know, not that it's that modern of a film anymore, but that's why, like, I think Jeepers Creepers does that great, where you mm-hmm. kind of just slowly reveal the creeper. And but I also think, um, as much as I don't mind CGI in some instances, werewolf films, I feel like the most you want to be like practical effects. Yeah. Right? There's something about because it is a it's a person turning into a monster, and because we've seen so many great practical versions of that that. It just seems like so lazy to then turn to CGI for that, and I and I love even like the, the corniest like practical werewolves to me feel more scary and and just more interesting than the best CGI werewolf. Yeah, and there's I don't know, and I I think I mean there's other creatures you could do in CGI 
probably more convincing, but I think with werewolves, because there has, unfortunately, there has been some movies that have done CGI werewolves, like American Werewolf in Paris and whatnot, and it's just, there's something about a creature that, um, and granted, that's a very old, you know, that's like a movie from 1996 or whatever it was, but, like, there's something about a creature being rendered in CGI that's supposed to be covered in fur never quite works, I don't think. Yeah. No, they still haven't really grasped. They haven't. They definitely haven't grasped that technology. I don't know if you saw Goosebumps. Um, I did. I did. I did. And it I, has, I liked it a lot, and I liked the werewolf a lot. I just wish it would have been a guy. Oh, really? See, like I didn't like the werewolf. I thought that was like the CGI was so like it just didn't feel true to the world at all, and it really took me out of that whole moment. No, I'm. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Clarify. The werewolf looked awful. I like. Yeah. I like the use of the werewolf. I like that um, when they they're running through the grocery store. Yeah. I was like, this is so cool, but if it was a guy in a suit, it would work so much better. Like, even if there was, like, even if they, like, did this, the wide running shots in CGI, but then cut to, the, like, the close-ups of the face or something, and it was, like, a guy in a mask or animatronic head, probably more likely. Like, yeah, like, it just, I don't know, it just, just werewolves don't work in CGI, I think. is No. So here we have the the marital problems start to come into play with D. Wallace, and Christopher Stone, because you know he has the scratches on his back. She, you know, he was missing the other night too. You know, she knows he's up to something. You know, in addition to his whole personality being switched out, and he gets even more Atkins. I feel when he uh, he slaps her there. <laughs> That seems like that's some, kind of a Tom Atkins moment. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. kind of a dick Tom Atkins move. <laughs> I feel like there's probably always been like issues between these two, though, just because you know she realizes she could have had Atkins and she settled for this. Yeah, why settle for fake Atkins when you can have the real thing? Of course, at this time, Atkins was probably acting part time and then also like working in a butcher shop in Pittsburgh or something. Don't you think? <laughs> Because, I mean, Atkins was, don't get me wrong, Atkins was working in the 80s, but he didn't have that cachet around him, you know? Yeah. Like, like I don't know, it's weird. But, like, I, wouldn't you say that Atkins mania took over? I mean, first of all, Tom Atkins isn't even in this movie, and we're spending half the show talking about him. <laughs> but I, I don't... That's just what he does, man. Yeah, I don't remember Atkins mania really coming off until probably the early, two, early to mid-2000s. I am. I mean, if that, yeah. But um, like, well, it was almost, says, almost the same time as the rise of the Chuck Norris jokes in a weird way. Yeah, it's like the lesser form of that, somewhat, right? It's like the horror fandom version of that, essentially, yeah. like oh. an even smaller cult, you know. But um, but yeah, I mean, like I said, it's it's he definitely. I guess everyone kind of knew who he was because he, yeah. he was in a lot of stuff. But sometimes it just takes time for people to catch up with the uh, the greatness, you know. It's true. We gotta talk about this sequence where. Uh, uh, the woman who's also Dennis Dugan's lover, she's she's snooping around the offices of the uh, doctor's office there in the colony, and you'll find out the research and the fact that the doctor knew all these weirdos and knew uh, what was the killer's name? Eddie Nyquist, I believe so. Yeah, yeah. So she's just the, he's actually like he's another like uh, the third brother, right? Right, or the second brother, I should say of of, of the of the weirdos, right? Mm-hmm. Of the witch woman and the other kind of embryo guy. But, you know, first of all, she snooped around this office. And you know a werewolf's going to come out because uh, Dante cuts to a TV playing a, a cartoon of a 
from like the 1940s or 50s probably of a cartoon wolf <laughs> walking around. But uh, I thought it was a great comedic moment. And I think it was completely intentional on Dante's part how she's going through the file cabinet and she pulls a file out and then you just see this werewolf hand reach down and take the file gently out of her hand. <laughs> <laughs> now this 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 I know because uh, the actress during the special feature this is like the scene where like they really went back and shot reshot because they got Afco to give them the budget to make the the full werewolf costume so they could get more angles and show it better mm-hmm. and whatnot. And like to me this is. I think this is probably the best scene in the movie in terms of, you know, relation to the werewolves and whatnot. You know, and it's a scene that as a kid did scare me too. Yeah. But like this this werewolf is terrible. You know what I've always said? I'm not sure if I've, I've I don't think you and I have ever talked about a werewolf movie on a podcast before. So I've always said it, 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 it I hope people can follow my logic here, but I know monsters aren't real, right? right. But if they were, I think a werewolf would be the thing I was this like the most scared of because you know a vampire is you can kind of you can reason with a vampire you can talk to a vampire, a mummy is slow, but a werewolf just seems so terrifying to me because it's basically like we've all if you've ever been chased by a dog you know oh, yeah. it's like that times a hundred and it's just right. it's such a scary creature and when and when they're well realized on film. I don't think there's anything more terrifying than that. Just imagine that thing grabbing you and, and you just knowing, like, I can't fight back against this. There's nothing I can do. Well, there's something that seems almost in a weird way, and I know this is going to sound idiotic saying this, but there's something, like, in the back of my mind that buys into it as being a little more realistic because it's, it's a creature that is a mix of man and beast. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like two things that you know. You know a man, you know a wolf, or, you know, a dog. And I also, I even, like movies that kind of blend the look of the werewolf from other animals like i know they actually use the a black bear as the inspiration for the werewolf in stephen king's uh, silver bullet movie which i thought was a brilliant mm-hmm. move but uh yeah just that combination of man and nature now we got to talk about this uh d wallace goes into the doctor's office and finds her friend pretty much scratched up you know borderline gutted whatever it was kind of a weird reaction, though. She wasn't like. I mean, it's like she instantly goes into mourning. I thought this was kind of a strange, whatever. Like, it's not like complete shock. Like, oh my god, my friend's dead. I need to run out of there right now. Like, which well, maybe they weren't that great of friends, you know? Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, like, it, it really hit me when I was finishing this movie up last night. And I was kind of curious what you what your take on that was. No, it is strange. Like, I guess it is strange. I don't know how much I ever reflect on while I'm watching the film, but now you bring it up, and I'm like, God damn, it's one of those things going to bother me now. But it is. it is, yeah. I always, I guess, I always did take it in my head like she's just kind of going into panic mode a little bit and like doesn't know how to deal with it. But I don't know. It's, I guess, it's only done right. It's the kind of thing where it's done for narrative reasons. They need yeah. her to be calm, so this part is like a bigger shock, you know. Right. But. And and also, too, I thought that was a clever little thing was, you know, she pulls the, there's like a sheet laying there kind of halfway covering her friend up. She pulls it, you know, out of respect for the dead type thing. She pulls it up over her friend's head. She turns around to use the phone, turn, turns back around and, and uh, the killer, Nyquist, uh, played by, uh, what was this gentleman's name, Bob Picardo, was that it? Robert, yeah, Robert Picardo. Robert Picardo, who a lot of people, I think, will know, won't they know him from Star Trek? Is that what Yeah, he's, he's definitely most famous today for uh, Star Trek Voyager, but uh, he's definitely uh, a Dante regular after this. Yeah. I think he's, I, I'm pretty sure he's pop, he popped up in every Dante film after this. I think he did. I mean, you'd know him as, like, uh, what is he, the cowboy in inner space, and uh, clamps, like, 
Yeah, Clamp's assistant. He's a, a garbage man in the Burbs. Um, he's great in matinee. So yeah, he's he's definitely in you know a uh, Dante uh, good luck charm. And he was he was actually a Broadway actor, and this was his first film, which I think is kind of shocking. And, and I know like once he was sitting in the, he was sitting in the makeup some days for like up to ten hours, and he was kind of thinking, what the hell did I do? What did I get myself into? Type thing. But I think the reason this works. Be, be, besides the awesome Botine makeup is I think the fact that it worked, that there was such a good actor to bring a real character to this made it fucking awesome. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that was a great moment where all of a sudden Nyquist pops up underneath the sheet and then D Wallace and you're kind of like, what, what the fuck? Her friend was just saying there like, you know, and then like, then she sees her friend laying on the ground. So like, what's your take on that? Did he just switch the body like completely silently? Yeah, I guess he's fast as hell, right? Yeah. And if you think about it, he's like, I guess he's just a fan of theatrics, right? Because he only right. did it just for the brief thing of scaring her, you yeah. know? There's but, no reason really to. But I mean, Dante totally kind of like, it'd be one thing if just the friend's body disappeared, then you'd be like, well, that's sloppy filmmaking. But he went out of his way to show that, that her body was then on the floor, you know what I mean? Yeah, like he just tossed it aside. Yeah. And you know, I hate to you know bring this up in this great moment of uh, Botine, awesome mastery here. But the reaction shots of D. Wallace, like these are some great shots where you can actually see how pretty she is. To be honest with you, yeah. Although it does strike me as odd, I'm, I'm more like you're freaked out by the fact, or not freaked out, but you're weirded out by her reaction to her friend's death. I'm weirded out by how long she stands here watching this transformation. Yeah, because, I would have I would have beat feet pretty quick. I don't know. I mean, obviously, there's a little bit of suspension of disbelief because it's like, why are we showing this transformation in such detail? Because we never really showed the transformations before. You know, we didn't know mm-hmm. how long it took, how in depth it was, or whatever. And this one's like, I'd say this is like we probably, you know, actual shots of Nyquist here uh, turning into the monster. We probably get a good. What, what would you say, 90 to 100 seconds of screen time of watching? Oh, yeah, for sure. And that makes you wonder, is that what happens every time, right? Because it yeah. seems like to not jibe with some other scenes in the film. But And, and you know, we, I guess we should just talk about the transformation, right? It's 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 rough to, not that they, it's not like they knew what was going on with American Royal in no. London. But it's tough to be the film that has to have a transformation the same year as that, right? right. Because obviously that's still the werewolf transformation. Right. But I like that this film also has a very long transformation that maybe isn't technically as impressive and isn't as memorable, but is just as cool and and, and just as like and it's unique in its own way. Right. And I, you know, people don't talk about this one like the American Werewolf one, maybe because the American Werewolf one, you know, really, it's the one that it, like it hurts to watch it, right? You feel right. the pain. You hear, but this one is cool. Yeah, but this one's cool because of how many different stages we see, right? And how how different he looks every time they show him, and I, I just love like every step of it along the way. Well, I mean, this is just for my—I've seen American Werewolf a million times. I, I have the Blu-ray. I watch it quite often. But I would say, from going off memory, I would almost say that American Werewolf has. Would you say the transformation has maybe three, maybe three and a half stages? Where Nyquist, he kind of had like six stages, yeah. going on there. And like the thing that I love about the Nyquist transformation is it's almost, and what I think is cool about it is it, it it comes to me, and obviously it is different because this movie, the mythology is different. These people can turn into werewolves anytime they want, almost like a freaking super power. So like what I love about the Nyquist thing, where it's like it's not happening against his will, he's actually making it happen. It's kind of like I love it because it's kind of like a cool Hulk out moment because they use so many of the bladders to expand his chest and arms and whatnot. Mm-hmm. 
and uh, they did that thing where they pumped the bladders really fast and shot at different speeds. So you almost you like you get this weird spasming effect that I thought like worked awesome. Here we go. I'd say almost this is probably you know we're we're kind of down into the the final showdown. Uh, you know she got away by Nyquist by you know, there was a jar of acid she smashed it on his face, his big werewolf face, and ran out. But then she was soon apprehended by uh, Pickens and some of the other people and brought to the barn. And, um, Trev, where are you at on McInnie? Uh Is he a werewolf or not? Cause I was, oh, I think, yeah. I, I think was, he is. I always yeah. assumed he was, but we never even got, like, a shot of his eyes, I don't think. Yeah, but I just take that as like Patrick McNeil is like I'm not I'm not putting those damn things in my <laughs> mouth or I'm not putting those things in my eyes. You know, I really think that's what it is. Because kind of kind of what the conflict between McNeil and the, some of the members of the colony I should say was he was really trying to kind of keep them in line and keep them civilized so that they you know they could keep on living because he you know he didn't want a situation where you know they just run free and people find out about them and hunt them down or whatever. He was trying to like mm-hmm. lead I guess the werewolf you know, werewolf community, I guess. I don't know, the werewolf yeah. community. He was trying to lead them into, you know, the the new century, so to speak, to make them civilized and whatnot. I'll tell you what, man, I'm glad I own this film on blue, though, because this is a beautiful film in, in a, a lot of scenes. And like these, like, what, Dante using the Dutch angles and, and just, well, I mean, how beautiful D. Wallace is, but then accentuate against, like, the blue smoke and... There's some great cinematography in this and just some amazing shots. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I meant to bring this up right away. But, you know, with these movies, a lot of people have the DVD and they're like, oh, should we buy the Blu-ray? I don't know. But, it, like, you know, a lot of people, they only kind of, with high definition, they only kind of see the benefit in the sharpness and clarity of it. This is a movie that was shot with a lot of fog, a lot of, you know, old school heavy duty lenses. The the film has a soft look to it, but I think the mm-hmm. the HD presentation really benefits from the colors being stronger. Yeah, because there's a lot of almost wouldn't you say almost like EC Comics creep show esque lighting going on throughout this. Oh movie. yeah, for sure. Yeah, you get, like Dante clearly loves the use of colors and primary colors shining on people's faces and yeah, and like the red light there and just things like that. So. Now we, we we were kind of talking about something else when it happened, but there was a part, you know, this you know this is the final showdown. Dugan's rushing to the colony because um, Death Wish Dugan, Death Wish Dugan is uh, right, you know, wishing, you know, rushing here because you know he heard his girlfriend, you know, murdered over the telephone or whatever. But there was like a quick tiny scene of him like going to the gas station and yelling at a guy because I guess he had to put gas in his car. <laughs> mm-hmm. See, this was the scene that made me doubt McInnie because he gets scratched on the face like they attack him and shit. And I mean, obviously, they, they were kind of tired of following his principles, his ways or whatnot. But I don't know. I, I guess the werewolves could turn on their own. Yeah, case. I don't see why not. They're not the nicest people, you know. No, nah, they're assholes. Let's be honest. These these are some asshole werewolves. Um, I get, you know, it just popped into my, my mind here. I, I guess another great werewolf... Or, or more famous werewolf of the 80s was probably uh, Wolfman from the Monster Squad, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was more of a classic, I don't know, Lon Chaney-esque inspired wolf, though, where, you know, the Howling and American Werewolf are really going for these 12-foot tall or 12-foot long type werewolves. But mm-hmm. 
Now, this is a great scene to watch. Dugan comes in, and uh, he he does do the classic dumb horror movie thing. Is he sees blood, and he has to touch it. But then he <laughs> has to, like, look at all these files. And, like, Trev, look how he's avoiding touching the files with his bloody <laughs> thumb and forefinger now. Well, I mean, they got multiple takes to do, you know? Yeah, yeah that's what I was thinking. The continuity. And that was a great shot where you saw the silhouette of the werewolf through the window. And then Nyquist comes through. And uh, Nyquist obviously getting uh, half his face burned off. Like, it looks like, I guess because he took some damage here, he wasn't quite able to go fully back into human form. Like his head is still, it's not like he's just a human with a burnt face. Like he's, his, even his skull structure is really kind of super deformed here. Yeah, I feel like this, like the way he looks here is I feel like the when they had those like, um, did you collect like those horror fright cards or whatever? They were just like I did, but way after the fact, I found a store selling them way after the fact. So probably like six years after they originally came out, I discovered. Them. Yeah, I'm pretty sure this is like the stuff they use from this film is yeah. is and it's weird because you look at it, it almost looks like zombie esque or something. Right. But, but uh, great, but another great makeup job though for sure. Great makeup, and I love the way it's. Uh shot there is there something about this movie with the lighting where they can put like a lot of stuff in shadow but then still have like highlights of light hitting stuff like it's it's really it's lit really really cool mm-hmm. and uh i forgot to point it out but when he transformed into the werewolf before in front of d wallace i love this kind of slat lighting that they had from the blinds of the windows and that kind of you know that slat lighting on his uh face really like help sell you know kind of hide some of the stuff or whatever and then that's like another thing that i kind of don't like about the cgi era is you see everything a little too in plain view you know yeah and it was a great moment of hubris there <laughs> fucking dummy eddie nyquist you know he hands the rifle back to dude and going go ahead and take this you know like he's showing off go ahead and take this you it won't do you any good and then he starts to wolf out again but he doesn't realize that uh, Dugan has silver bullets, so mm-hmm. Dugan just blasts them and he starts dying right away. I thought that was a great moment. So, I mean, you could argue that Dick Miller like is the hero of the film. They sold him those things. That is true. Well, he kind of sold him against his will, though, because Dugan just threw some money down and took him out, and he was screaming, hey, come back there. I'm not sure really how much to charge for them or whatever. <laughs> you know, it's kind of funny... This this point in the story right here, we start to get another transformation of a character. Is you know these werewolves? They're so they're so they got such big fucking egos. You know Dugan's like okay, you know he's trying to get D Wallace back. They're holding her kind of hostage here, and um, he's saying you know come on like you know, like like you know just let her go or whatever, and you know step back, everybody get back, you know. And he even tells them I got silver bullets, and they're like ah we don't fucking believe you. And then he shoots one of them. And then, like, they still don't believe him, so then he shoots the, uh, the the commercial superstar over there. And finally they start believing. But uh, I thought, I, like we said before, uh, I thought Dugan did a good job in the kind of stepping up as the hero. Because I, you know, like, as many times as I've seen this, like, it still kind of takes me by surprise sometimes. Well, I mean, it's the, it's the kind of hero you want in a film like this, though, right? Because it is relatable, and it just seems like a normal guy who's forced in a situation. And, and just sometimes that's more enjoyable than the Schwarzenegger or whatever, right? Yeah. I mean, there's a place for both, but... I feel like, also, I feel kind of bad that we've got this far. We never really talked about um, the the actress Elizabeth Brooks, who plays uh, Marsha Quist, the kind of, you know, witchy She's sister. Witch, yeah. Um, who unfortunately passed away in, in 97 uh, at only 46 years old. Wow. But 
She must have been looking super at her, young when she made this, then. Yeah, but I mean, looking at her IMDb, it's not even like after she did this, she did a film called uh, Deep Space, and then The Forgotten One, and Jaded in 89, and that was really kind of it. And that's, and that's actually surprising to me, because... I'm not. It's not that I'm going to say that she's an amazing actress. I'm not just saying like, oh, she's great because she's nude in this and she's attractive. But she definitely has this kind of star power. Pres- right? yeah. yeah, this like presence that I feel like I'm surprised we didn't see her play kind of a femme fatale right. in more horror films and more genre stuff after this. And from what they're saying on the special features, I think she was actually like a blonde lady because she actually is wearing a wig in this film. The dark hair is mm-hmm. a wig. But uh, Dugan, uh, he he locked in all the werewolves into the barn and kept on fire. And this is a great kind of mini sequence of them burning in the fire and just close-ups of the werewolves screaming and stuff. And it's it's really it's really cool and shocking to see like these scary creatures actually terrified and in panic and dying and shit. But uh, this is where some of the the stop motion stuff was really you know there was like some really cool shots of uh, a handful of werewolves you know banging on the door and stuff and stop uh, stop motion while the fire was going up and kind of kind of missed that in there, but. I mean, I understand it doesn't blend well with the practical, whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, Dugan here, he's got a cool ass. I can't tell you. I think I think that might actually be a two seater Mazda. And uh, the werewolf gets on the uh, roof, and he wrecks the shit out of this car. This werewolf, <laughs> he doesn't give a shit. I love the silhouette of the howling werewolves too, with the long kind of. I don't know what you would call them. Kind of jackalope ears, I guess. Yeah. It's a really unique silhouette for a werewolf. But, uh, yeah, they shoot they shoot the werewolf off the, the, the top of the car, drive away, and this is where... Uh, Ols- Everything's going to be all right, right? Yeah. Slim Pickens. Oh, he's the sheriff, but he's a, he's a freaking werewolf, too. I guess I put. I would have. I would have liked maybe a werewolf like dubbed with Slim Pickens' voice here. Is... That that would have been super cool, kind of cartoony in a good, cool yeah. way. Look at look at a uh, action dumb dumb Dugan here. He pops up out of the car. He shoots the shit up. So I was like, I'm telling you, like he's. It's not like he just had one or two scenes. Like he's just laying waste to these fucking werewolves. <laughs> this little nerdy mm-hmm. man. I was actually, you know, they did they did bash the shit out of that car, that Mazda that Dugan was driving, so I sh- probably shouldn't be surprised by it. But I was, at, you know, I'm kind of surprised with the low budget of this film that they actually blew up his car. You know, Pickens had shot it up enough, it was leaking gas, and it blew up. But I was surprised they were able to pull that off. Probably, I'm sure they only had one to work with. Exactly. <laughs> probably had eight cameras on it. <laughs> just, <laughs> just to make sure they caught it. Now this, like, they jump in Pickens' uh, cop car here, and they're trying to get away. And I guess it's an old piece of shit; it won't start right away. But they got all these werewolves banging, and I tried to like kind of look when I was watching this other night. But you know how many different werewolf suits they had? But I, I thought they really only had like one. Maybe they had different heads that they used for different shots. But I think maybe as far as the full body suits, there might have only been one, possibly two. Oh, D. Wallace gets uh, bit by a werewolf. Tears in the top of the roof of the car or whatever. Genuinely shocking, I think. You know, oh, I think like so those, too. So I mean, you really don't expect you, your your hero has gotten through all this, and then it's just like, eh, nope, never mind. Because they were so close to being away, getting away. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, not, and I should genuinely shocking and genuinely uh, sad, and kind of you know, it's a, oh, yeah. it's a bummer. 
I mean, you can say like the film's goofy, the film's a comedy, but I think you are investing her enough at this point where it's actually really a bummer that the character doesn't make it. Yeah. And there was uh, during that well, they're peeling away in. Dante even said we had to hide it in a dissolve too, but there was that one stop motion shot of the three werewolves howling as they drove away. Mm-hmm. What would you think of that shot, Trevor? Are you digging I, it as I, much as I? Yeah, no, I, I like it. I like stop motion stuff. I mean, yeah. I don't, you know, whatever. I even if like you, if you if you can't buy into the reality of it, then I mean, yeah. I, I whatever, you know. But it's I look. I know there's not real werewolves in general, so I can I can suspend my disbelief on that. Well, the same thing kind of happened at the end of the thing, right? There was some another uh, Rob Bottin film where they they try to add in some st- stop motion shots of the thing, and they took a lot of it out, if not all of it, from what I remember. It's hard. It seems like people really are only willing to even around this time. People were really only willing to go yeah. the stop motion route if they if it was a a very campy film, and if right. and even though this is comedic, it's not necessarily campy. So right. They kind of shy away from it. Isn't it pretty? It is. We never. I mean, we did mention it came out the same year as American Werewolf. But how weird is it really, though, that like the two still, I'd say, like the the two biggest, you know, werewolf movies of the modern era came out the same year, were made at the same time without them really knowing that the other one was right. being made, or you know, or like working together at all, and they were both horror comedies. That's that's pretty pretty crazy, you know. Yeah, I mean, this, you know, uh, obviously everybody knows American Werewolf is universal picture. This, you know, there's really no way they could have known, like, if they were both made by major studios, it'd probably be more than a coincidence. But yeah, like, this was made, Howling was made in the, the independent world. They they clearly didn't know what Universal was up to, unless Joe Dante knew John Landis, which I don't know. I've never really, you know, never heard him say that or whatever. But, um... But yeah, I mean, there's really no way they could have known because they were made at exactly the same time. Mm-hmm. And, it, and even like Rick, Rick Baker was supposed to do the effects for this, and he left to go do American Werewolf instead. Right. right. So, but it's just I don't know. And the the movies really, I think the reason we're able to love them both, and I've always been a huge, you know, American Werewolf in London fan. So I mean, it took me a lot of years to not that I didn't like this movie. I always liked this movie, but like. I don't know. I, I think this is a movie... I think you can enjoy Werewolf in London more when you're a kid. And I think this is a movie where the the way you know the way a story is laid out... Like, you, I think you get more out of it when you're an adult. I'll say that. I'd agree with that. And I always... Rem- this is what I always remembered, you know, as a kid. You know, just seeing this, uh, you know, wherever when I was young. Like, this was like the... You know, you know, back before you could just, like, press a button and watch a movie anytime you wanted to. Like... When you went years and years without, you know, seeing a movie, you would have like one or two memory scenes. Like this is what I always remembered of the Howling, was this this end scene, and I never remember that it was actually kind of so comedic too, because uh, basically she goes on air knowing she'll turn into a werewolf, and she turns into the werewolf, you know, on camera to let people, you know, let the people of the world, the viewing audience, watching the news, uh, wear wear poodle. Yeah, yeah, and they even said that like. Like Dante and then and then D said she wanted it that way too. Is they wanted her to look completely different because she was a quote unquote good person supposedly. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't know really that logic. If I really subscribe to that. Well, yeah, because if you're going to tell me she changed into something because she's a good person, then the question is, well, should he have not shot her? Right? Like right. maybe she was. Did she could, did she have control over it? Would she have been a good werewolf? No. Yeah, I mean, could she have? You know, you, you know, and that's the thing too is. You know, these werewolves control when they 
turn into a werewolf, basically. They could turn into a werewolf day, night, whatever. That's why I wondered, could she have just controlled it and really never werewolfed out, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, and then there was a great, you know, montage of different people watching it, the reactions and whatnot, including Dick Miller, of course. But, like, about half the people, were, you know, like, the little kids watching, they're like, oh, this is cool. But, like, a lot of the people had no reaction to it whatsoever. They're like, oh, whatever. You know, some people thought it was fake. Some people didn't care. Mick Garris, <laughs> the master of horror, Mick Garris, he had his cameo. He was very indifferent <laughs> when he saw the Pekingese <laughs> poodle, whatever, <laughs> werewolf. Um, and then, of course, it ends in the nice wraparound where a bunch of guys in a bar see it and they're debating. Some people think it's real. Some people fake. At the end of the... Uh, and then the the bartender slash I guess shorter cook asks asks somebody how they want their uh, burger cooked, and the uh, woman says medium rare or whatever. And we pan over, and it's it's the Nyquist, the witchy lady. So that's the only thing. I'm not I'm not really sure how much we needed that. Whatever. Yeah, but I feel like a lot of movies around the time where it had that like little button on yeah. it. And the the actual shame of it is that I don't like I don't know that. I don't think Dante was trying to set up a sequel. No, I don't think he was. As much as just have a fun little button. That said, this film does set up an amazing idea for a sequel that the sequel just ignores. Exactly. Uh, I mean, the idea of the whole world knowing werewolves exist now is actually pretty cool. And uh, for those who haven't seen The Howling 2... I mean, maybe we'll do it someday because I, I would because I like it. But yeah, we'll do it. it. It really, it really just throws that out the window and, and kind of reverts right back to uh, it being a whole secret society again and and you know people. It's really weird because I feel like I think the film actually starts with this end sequence, right? Don't they show us this yeah. happening? Yeah, but, but I, I, I think of, there's some kind of reference, and everybody thinks it's a hoax for some reason. Yeah, yeah, because the main character in that actually is the brother of the D. Wallace character. Yeah. Uh, was trying to prove like what happened to his sister was real but yeah I, I don't know i just wish that they'd had and maybe it's a budgetary thing or whatever but i wish they'd had the, the balls to make a sequel about uh, the world dealing with this revelation yeah and um i don't know it just it's so interesting uh you know and obviously i mean there i think i find it really interesting that some people we see in this montage at the end of the various people watching it I do find it really interesting that some people just don't care whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Here we have the even other little button of the... Uh, do you know what Wolfman movie this is from? I don't, offhand, no. Yeah. couldn't remember if it was like the Larry Talbot one, but we had the gypsy lady saying something to the guy. You know. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it is just the Wolfman. I think it is too, which I'm surprised they got the rights to show that, but I'm sure the licensing, whatever, was probably easier back then. No, yeah, I don't think they cared back then. Yeah. No. But, um, but yeah, I kind of lost my train of thought, but, um, shit, what was I going to say? Talking about the button or something, or? Oh, man. My brain just died. <laughs> the movie <laughs> ended, my brain died. No, I, I had some point, but it's okay. It's the howling. But, um... Were you going to talk about how weird of a franchise the Howling became after this? We do, you know. Now that the movie's over, we do we do have to talk about that. But uh, I think I was going to say, I wonder what happened to Dugan if he went to jail for shooting her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, I bet he did. I bet he did. But uh, yeah, let's talk a little bit about the sequels and whatnot. I mean, we don't have to break them all down, but um, 
basically it was just a situation where the people and if you have the blu-ray you can see about the guy who acquired the rights and kind of started this whole franchise and kept going with all the sequels and he even talks about how ridiculous it is but that was the one thing that was always confusing to me about this movie was this movie was so good and like as a kid, like, because I didn't really understand sequel rights, and the, the sequels were made by different studios, too, and other things. Like, I didn't understand how you could start out with, like, a movie so good on part one, and it just turned to shit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, I mean, yeah, it loses itself kind of right away, right, with, like, the part two, which is fun, but yeah. not a great sequel, necessarily. Then we get to Howling 3, The Marsupials, which, yeah. uh... I mean, I mean, I love it, but for all the wrong reasons. But I think that's true of anyone who loves that film. You know, it's it's very much like a classic bad film. Well, also too, like I, I mean, Howling Two actually had pretty good theatrical distribution. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like, oh, they made a cheap sequel in name only or whatever. But um, but by the time you got to Howling Three, which I'm sure it did play theatrically around the world, but. I don't, you know, I remember it being a direct video thing, and at that time, direct video movies had a real stigma, and for some cause, too, I think. I think there was a reason for it. Yeah. But, and those first three are kind of a, a, there's like a general continuity. Like you said, this is basically a standalone film, but I mean, Howling 2 is saying, well, it's the, the character's brother, and then Howling 3 presupposes that it's the same continuity, but it shows that there are tribes, these werewolves, that ended up in Australia, and they evolved differently, right? Right. And then, as we said earlier, Howling Four just says like, "Look, let's reboot with like basically a remake of the first yeah. one, um, and just re- and try to do the first novel again." And, and then after that, the series kind of got taken over by this guy named Clive Turner, um, who I you know never I, I guess just didn't want to like spend more than forty dollars on any of them. Yeah, they got insanely it, cheap then. Yeah, it really starts to show, and you get into films like Howling Five, The Rebirth, Howling Six, The Freaks, and then finally. Howling 7, New Moon Rising, which is one of the worst films I've ever seen. I just recently watched it for the first time, and I watched the Monster Vision version on YouTube, and that's really the only thing that made me able to power through <laughs> and seeing through. how flustered and and like annoyed by it Joe Bob Briggs was on all the breaks. And uh, that one's so bad because it's like Clive Turner, not, not only was he the director and writer of that one, he decided to star in it as well. Okay. It's really like this bad vanity project. And I guess he had it's even like the, in like uh, parts five and six he had played little parts, but like they had like different characters, and he does this dumb thing in part seven where he reveals that actually that was the same character in all of these, oh and he's tries to make it so he's like weaved his way through this. And so after that, like that was nineteen ninety five that Howling Seven came out, uh, atrociously bad. Watch the Monster Vision just for the fun of Joe Bob Briggs going insane, but. And then it laid dormant for a long time, and then they came back with one I haven't seen, but I think you have, right? The the bizarre kind of like Twilight. Oh, I, yeah, I've just read that. about it, but I do want to okay. see it. No, yeah. I, I actually I saw part on cable. It was playing one night. That's how I, I discovered it. I was like, "What the hell is this?" And then I looked it up. But yeah, yeah. And I feel like when I first heard about that, I, I thought it, it, I initially read there was like another remake, but I guess it's its own thing. But definitely kind of more of like a, you know, trying to hit that that teen market. Yeah, it's like a Twilight uh, remake. I, yeah. I mean, I don't know. Like I really like I I saw parts of three and four. Actually, you know what? I watched. It's been a million years, but I've watched. I know for sure parts three and four. Sometimes on regular TV with it all chopped up and shit because they were always playing on syndicated TV when I was in high school. But um, but like the first two are the you know the ones that I have the clearest memories of, and you know part two like I was I I remember going to see it with my dad and like 
even as a kid, it was like there's something like off about this. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it, it you know it's like okay, it's it's got Christopher Lee and stuff, but it was like, like you could tell it was like some. I think they shot it in Czechoslovakia, but it really looked like some Romanian cheap bullshit. You know what I mean? Like it didn't, it didn't really, you know. It just really screamed of a B picture compared to like some of the other stuff that was coming out around that time. You know, some of the genre stuff that was really, you know, like there was a lot of the slasher movies at the time that really looked like pornos and shit. But like you had stuff like Fright Night around that era come out. Like you know, a lot of the stuff that would have like a quote unquote, you know, have a real monster in it. Like they looked like pretty classy and stylistic movies. And you know, Howling Two. You know, they talk a lot about of it. The cheap budget and shit kind of made it look, you know whatever but yeah well, howling to your sister's a werewolf and i just noticed online that the original title was howling to sturba werewolf bitch really i'm not surprised that didn't clear you know but but but, but now as like an older person and whatnot i do want to pick up the blue of howling Two just for obviously christopher lee sybil dane it's more just the cast and the infamy that it has you know what i mean mm-hmm. i do i do want to pick it up yeah i mean it, it's not you know like i said it's not a great sequel but as its own campy kind of fun thing, you know, right. you can have a good time with it. Exactly. It is just kind of mind-boggling. The only reason I even ran down that list of movies is I just think it's so weird to think that there's eight of these films, you know, right. and, and really there only is one that people give a shit about. It's this one that we just watched, and it's it's so interesting that the franchise dragged along as long as it did uh, through, like, sheer force of will of a couple money-hungry guys, you Fuckers, know. Yeah. And a, yeah. Lot, a lot of it, too, is it was a... You know, because, I mean, aside from that recent Twilight one, like, all those movies were made pretty much within, like, a 12 or 13 year time span. So Mm -hmm. it just really was the fact that you could make, like, they even said it in, like, some of the documentaries and stuff that you can see on the Blu-ray. Like, they even say, like, it just, the, the name was recognizable enough that, you know, you could, uh... Turn a certain profit from the home video market just with the name. You're like, who cares yeah. about how bad the movie is, you know? Yeah. Speaking of which, you know, the home video thing, I forgot to bring this up during the movie, but um, I think this has one of the, the best, most iconic, just actual, like, really high-quality pieces of art, the poster for The Howling. You know, and it's it's kind of ambiguous with with kind of like the sheet or whatever it is with the s- scratch marks, and then you see a woman's like mouth screaming through the you know the slit and the thing like like I th- I think you know that's kind of what made this movie such a cult classic instantly was there's that video cover. I mean, you know, all horror movies back then were trying to have a shocking cover to catch your eye, catch your whatever. But that one, like you, like I remember seeing it. You know, even though I had seen the movie, like I always would look at the cover and box and stuff when I would see it in video stores. Just it was so eye catching and cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, that's a long gone, you know, bygone era. But uh, you know, the the uh, the actual artwork, the you know, a lot of it was painted. Obviously, there wasn't Photoshop back then. But I, I think especially horror movies too in the eighties had some of the best posters because of that. You know. Yeah. I'm 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 definitely tempted to someday sit down and read like the three howling novels by Gary Bradner and, and see, you know, especially like I guess like I kind of guess I I get the general gist of what the story of the first one is from this and from part 4, but I'd like to see what his 2 and 3 were like. And it's funny that they say that they deviate it from the novel so much with the howling because when you watch it, like we said, because it, it is so detailed and, you know, you don't really know, quite know who the 
you know, I mean, you have D. Wallace, but these other characters, you don't know who's the who's the main characters, who's going to be the hero, who's not. Like, there's a lot of detail in there. Like, it seems like, you know, it had to be adapted from a novel because how much detail is in there compared to other horror scripts and movies. Of the I mean, time. I, I've, I've, like I guess I've seen the other movie that did the novel, and I've and I've read the plot synopsis of the novel, and I mean, really, they did they did follow the novel in this. They just change some kind of details here and there like in the novel she's not a reporter she's just a woman who actually gets attacked by her home and kind of has a has a breakdown about it and so she goes to this you know this colony or to to just kind of relax and and it's just like little things like that but in general it seems like it follows the, the plot beats i'm sure when they say it doesn't feel like the novel i'm guessing what they're complaining about is the addition of comedy to it you know and just the the dante feel but that's what made it a classic, and I think that's why we love it. You know, beyond, I mean, great, great oh, effects yeah. work, great comedy, great cast. Um, I mean, oh, it's a winner. Yeah, I mean, good, good script, good basis for a story, but definitely the the classic special effects and the direction, the kind of fun, poppy direction. I think is what made it by far stand the test of time. So. Mm. That's it for that. So if like if Hollywood's listening to this, we're pleading with you, bring werewolf films back. But bring, bring them back and but with practical effects. Yeah, please, practical effects. You know, watching this the other night too is because there's still people to this day, Trev. Even though you can't get a job doing it, like there's still people who go to like you know effects school and all that and learn. It's like I'm kind of surprised that somebody out there just hasn't you know a student hasn't sat down and you know, over the course of whatever, eight months, nine months, whatever, put together an awesome werewolf suit, like a really top-notch werewolf suit together, and then made like a micro-budget movie around it. You know what I mean? hmm But I don't know. I guess it's much easier to shit out, f- like, cheap zombie flicks with people with white paint on their face for Netflix or whatever. Yeah, for sure, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's it for The Howling. The horror train keeps rolling along in the month of October. Um... Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can always email us at 1980smoviegraveyard at gmail.com. Let us know what you think. You can hit up the Facebook, facebook.com slash 1980smoviegraveyard. You can support us, help keep the lights on, help keep these uh, discs spinning, so to speak. Help us out, help us with our advertising budget. And you can do that over at patreon.com slash 1980smoviegraveyard. And there's a few little bonus things you'll get if you uh, become a monthly supporter over there. But other than that, that that's all my cheap plugs. Tell the people where else they can find you, Trev, when you're not digging up old films in the graveyard. Yeah, you can also hear me on uh, If It Bleeds, We Can Kill It, a uh, general pop culture entertainment podcast. Uh, well, that sounds like a really high flutin' way to put it. Yeah, come on, it's nerd <laughs> shit. Be honest. Yeah, it's just it's just two guys bullshit about nerd stuff. And then uh, Days of Future podcast, which is uh, me and a buddy talking about the X Men and. Uh, going off in crazy tangents and never staying on topic. But, uh, yeah, that's that's the other place you can find me. And then probably just hell more, a lot more of these coming up, I'm oh, sure. Oh, yeah, they'll be hearing you a lot more in the month of October here. We're trying to pile it up. We're trying to do it. This was actually one of the movies. We actually set a schedule of movies, Trev, and this was uh, not one of the ones on it. But uh, I'm glad we did it because, you know, mm-hmm. it's a classic and hopefully it will boost them ratings. You know, some name recognition. <laughs> so, everybody, thank you so much. Uh, enjoy your October. Enjoy your Halloween season. I hope we're helping making it special by pl- pumping out as many possible episodes as we as we can. Uh, I don't know if we'll meet our goal of ten. Have your have your uh, ratings gone up since Stranger Things brought the eighties back? 
you know, our ratings have gone up, but I don't know why. <laughs> I, uh, let's, I, well, let's just say Stranger Things because, you know, that show has cured cancer. It's uh, cancer. it's done everything. Right? Oh, yeah. Man. Oh, yeah. Okay, Stranger Things. I know Stranger Things came out of nowhere to be bigger than games game of thrones marvel movies and like whatever combined so yeah i think those people hadn't even heard of the 1980s until they saw that show exactly so. so yeah so thank you everybody take care happy halloween happy halloween